caring for our communities, out of the gym and off the park, working just as hard paying it forward to our next generation. This is More Than An Athlete with Izzy and Kempe. Brought to you by Tremaine Real Estate, bringing people and property together in our communities. Joining us now to talk about not just his book, but also his uh, life lifestyle is uh, Guy Cotter, a Kiwi mountaineer, mountain guide, and a man that helps the adventures of other people come true as well. Guy, good morning to you. Yeah, good good morning. Hope, uh, hope it's all going well up there. Yeah, it's all going well here, mate. Uh, uh, you've got a new book out, Everest Mountain Guide, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer. Um, I mean, I know a little bit about your story, Guy, but when did you first fall in love with mountaineering? When did you first look at something that was far, far, far closer to the sun than you were and go, I want to get to the top of that? Uh-huh. Well, it probably all started when I was real young, going tramping with my family down in Fiordland and looking up out of the valleys at the peaks around and and uh, building up a desire over time to go there. And when I was actually quite young, living in Christchurch, I'd go to Arthur's Pass on the weekends and and go and climb hills all around there and, and, and little mountains and go tramping. And, and that just progressed to uh, rock climbing, mountaineering, uh, guide qualification, and then later in life being able to work all around the world. So it's, it's been a, an amazing um, lifestyle for me. It has been. I mean, you, I, I said in the in the in the lead in here, there are fourteen peaks over eight thousand meters in the world, and you have climbed half of them. Um, how did that transition happen for you? Where you went from, hey, this is something I enjoy doing, to this is something I can do for a living. In uh, nineteen ninety two, I went to Everest for the first time with Rob Hall and Gary Ball. I had done a couple of trips to the Himalayas prior to that, but not climbed one of the eight thousand meter peaks. So when uh, Hall and Ball and their company Adventure Consultants started guiding on Mount Everest, uh, it was like right at the forefront of that industry starting. So I was lucky enough to be invited along as the third guide to work with them. Uh, climbed Everest in 92, and I've, I've now climbed Everest five times. Uh, and other years, instead of going to Everest, uh, I've had groups of people to take to other 8,000-meter peaks. So um, I'm very lucky because I've got a group of clients who are just interested in going off on these amazing expeditions. Uh, we cook something up, come up with an idea, a peak or a place in the Antarctic or whatever, uh, and then I go through the process along with my uh, staff and my company to organise and put those trips together. So we go as a collective uh, with other guides who work with us, uh, go to every continent on Earth every year, uh, climbing the highest peak on every continent, so that's called the Seven Summits. But we also do, uh, you know, the the eight thousand meter peaks. Guy, guy, what's it what's it like like for for someone that doesn't really quite understand when you put it together in meters? It looks so simple, but what's it like? Because it, it, when you when you're starting to go to altitude, there's all sorts of, um, I, I, I guess, challenges, isn't there? There is. There's lots of physiological challenges just dealing with the thin atmosphere. And we use uh, bottled oxygen up very high, but you've still got to acclimatise your body uh, up to about 7,500 metres. And that takes a period of time of, of adjustment by going high, then coming back down to rest. And when you do go to high altitude, your body is really affected. Uh, through the lack of oxygen, you know, so um, you lose your appetite, you can't sleep, some people, you know, you can't eat. Mm. Uh, it's really, really uncomfortable. But by going and immersing yourself in it, going up to a high camp, 
sleeping overnight or staying overnight and then come back down to rest. Your body recovers, you build more red blood cells. Next time you go up, you feel much better at that elevation and then you go and do it again up to another elevation until you're ready to, or well enough acclimatized to then go to the summit, maybe with the use of bottled oxygen. Uh, it's, it's really quite you know, out there as an activity. I mean, you're really pushing the boundaries mm. of what's possible. Humans weren't supposed to be living up above 8,000 meters. You know, your body actually shuts down and dies if you spend any time there. But the whole process of an expedition is awesome. It's got a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's a real challenge. And your, your whole mindset has to be fully immersed to be there. Uh, and that's what makes it so exciting, like watching the sun come up when you're very high on Everest and you're looking down on, on everything on Earth is, is quite the sensation. Mm. How special is it then with the Sherpas that actually live over there that uh, that help you out with all this sort of stuff? When you're talking about it being a challenge for, for a, a typical per- person like myself, how special is it to see them people up there just go about it as a, as a daily routine? Yes, well, working with the Sherpas has always been a, a part of the joy that um, I've had from working in the Himalayas on, on Everest especially uh, just because as you say you know they, they live up at high altitude they are adapted to you know, high altitude and they perform very well, They're, a lot of them are amazing athletes um, but when you get very very high uh, above 8,000 metres uh, you know, often the differences between us uh, disappear and, and we're all um, you know, operating at about the same standard, or those of us who are, um, you know, who have been in the mountains all their lives. Uh, so it's really good to work alongside them. They're very, very humble and very talented. And you know, we've I've got lifelong friends from uh, our Sherpa team, and everybody loves going over there. The treks that we operate in Nepal, you know, for people who aren't mountaineers coming to Everest Base Camp, uh, or you know, putting their foot in the high altitude uh, water for the first time and climbing some of the lower peaks, 6,000 metres or so, uh, often doing that with the Sherpas. And, uh, you know, they're great, um, you know, they're great uh, team members, very strong and uh, also uh, fun to be with for a, a long expedition. Hemingway once said, there are only three sports, bullfighting, motor racing and mountaineering. Everything else is a game. Um I think uh, you you probably can attest to that more than most, mate. Uh, you talked about going to Everest '92 with Hall and Ball, uh, and then it was, you know within four years they were both dead, died on mountains. How did you reconcile that and be able to carry on? Yeah, that was a certainly a challenging time losing um, Gary in 1993 and Rob in 1996. Uh, yeah, but. I can reconcile it because they were both uh, doing it because they wanted to be there. It's very different from you know uh, the tragedies where you know life is taken. It's very different when people are committed to the environment and you know and unfortunately uh, succumb to it. But uh, you know mountaineering is a, a dangerous activity, and the you know the results of of getting it wrong are obviously you know fatal. So. And that's always been a part of mountaineering, and it's the thing that, when you go on an expedition, it's, it's like going to a, to a battle of sorts. You really have to recognise that you're in a super dangerous position. That anything you do wrong may mean that that you can die. And my approach has always just been to um, be 
extremely cautious. But if you're too cautious, you never actually get up a mountain. Yeah. Uh, if mm. you're not cautious enough, you're going to get in trouble. So uh, you've got to find that fine line and, if you like, strike when the iron's hot, wait till everything is um, aligned correctly and the condition of the mountain, the condition of the people, and everything is uh, appropriate for uh, going onto the mountain. And I think that is one of the things that makes mountaineering uh, a very real activity because of the high consequence of getting it wrong. And you must always acknowledge that every time you go into the mountains. It doesn't mean it matter whether you're someone like myself who's done heaps of mountaineering. Even going onto a small mountain, you've got to show it the amount of respect that it deserves because anything can go wrong at any time if you let it. Yeah, Guy Cotter joining us here talking about climbing um, Mount Everest of all places. Guy, the, the story that you you tell at the at you know just when you when you're coming across, it's so like this is what you need to do. But when you when you're actually there, how challenging is it when you've got people at altitude that sort of lose their minds and you're trying to keep them on the straight and narrow? Do, do you, have you had some really hairy inc- um, instances up there? Yes, certainly had some hairy instances. Uh, just about every expedition, there's another hairy incident or or, or many. Uh, it's all part of operating in that environment where you're right on the edge. Mm. Uh, as a guide, when you're looking after other people, the mindset is really about um, and you know watching and monitoring everybody and, and ensuring that everybody is uh, appropriately uh, prepared physically, mentally, and everything. And and you know, when things do go wrong, you've, you've got to have some sort of plan. And that's been the way that we've always operated is, uh, you know, if things go wrong, you've, you've already in your mind worked out what you're going to do. So I like to say that I operate in a state of constant paranoia. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. What it really means is that I'm always thinking about everything that could possibly go wrong, then what I could do about it. And that way you're not surprised so much when things do go wrong you see the writing on the wall and then you anticipate it and you already have a plan in your head so it's a it's just an ongoing process and as a guide you're up there looking after other people and and you've little thought for yourself really so as a guide you've got to be so much more onto it we're taking people up Everest to go home and they write books about it and they go on the speaking circuit and they never mention us because we're the ones who have uh, actually helped get up there but uh, that's that's just part of the the process, and um, you know that's that's enabled you know myself and and other guys who work with us to uh, go and do these amazing adventures around the world. I remember a few years back, uh, or quite a few years back now, Sir Ed Hillary coming out and criticising uh, people like Hall and Ball, particularly uh, for commercialising Everest, and he 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 was against it. Um, do you think that it has been handled? in the right way by most people in your profession and that that the respect is shown to the, not just the people, but to the mountain? Yeah, well, I think Sir Ed, you know, had a really good point. He sort of saw the the death of adventure, I think, is is what was going on in his mind. And I I totally get that, you know, as a mountaineer. I mean, a mountaineer as well as a guide. Uh, And sort of as he was pointing out, you know, people just pay to go and sort of um, stand in line sort of thing is... is, uh, uh, is what he saw happening, and but at the same time, mountaineering was always commercial. Uh, 
you know, all of those early expeditions, they all relied on a, on a lot of funding, and some of that was public funding, and and um, some of it was, you know, national teams were all supported by either governments or corporations or sponsors or whatever. All we did was change it so that individuals can get to go to Everest, and prior to that, you had to be on a national team. Uh, so we kind of took the elitism out of it so that um, any qualified person could go to Everest. And I think what we're seeing uh, pictures of now is, is a, a lot of people on the mountain. And and part of the problem is that uh, a lot of these operators who are out there, many of them now Nepalese operators, are just accepting anybody on, onto their expedition and, and not requiring them to have climbed other appropriate mountains, stepping stones to get there. And by um, shortcutting that process, uh, it's it's crowding the mountain. And, and uh, I think you know, we've always seen this this issue, whether it was in Western operators and now Nepalese operators who are uh, just trying to um, get the financial advantages they can. Um, and I can understand it in Nepal, you know, having this tourism opportunity of Mount Everest in the backyard. A lot of them want to make the best of it. Uh, but I do think it could be managed um, a bit better uh, by just having you know, higher standards for who can come to the mountain and mm. also higher standards for who's operating on the mountain, who's running expeditions. Guy, uh, so, Guy let's talk about sorry. that because you know everyone's seen the, the Netflix um, programs and, and the challenges that they have up there on, on Everest. Well, like you, you're talking about the 90s when you, you first started going there. Uh, up until today, what's it like up there? So you, you know, where does like the the con, the concern and the um, for not just the environment but for the the people in in a whole come from if it just becomes a tourist destination? Well, that's a that's a philosophical question um, because I mean it already is a tourist destination, you know, Nepal and, and Mount Everest to go to the base of a trek to Everest Base Camp is a tourist destination, um, you know, guiding people on, on the high peak um, to the summit is, if you like, high altitude tourism. Um, that, But that's been going on all around the world for, for many, many years. And looking at the positive sides of it, um, is the safety standards since we've had professional mountain guides going on to the mountain has made Everest uh, the, probably the safest of the 8,000 metre peaks. And that's because prior to us turning up, every expedition that arrived on the mountain uh, with, as a national team or whatever, um, they often had not very experienced leaders. They didn't have very cohesive teams and, and a lot of bad mistakes were made that were avoidable. Now you've got uh, you know, professional uh, managers uh, mountain guides, you know, Sherpa managers who have been there year after year after year, uh, and and we've got better quality um, of safety equipment all the way up the mountain, ropes and ladders and so on. So the upside of it is that we've made it a lot safer so that it is doable. You're not sort of throwing people, um, you know, into hazard's way uh, as much. And so I think you've got to find a fine line between over-loving the mountain and uh, neglecting it. And I know there are some people who say, I'll oh, leave the mountain alone. Mm. You know, I can understand that. Uh, but at the same time, tourism is very important for Nepal. They don't have much in the way of foreign income. And, 
expeditions and trekking really has helped that country a lot and uh, they're going to keep encouraging that. So it's more about how do we make it better and I've always kept trying to encourage uh, better standards, uh, more qualifications for the, for the guides on the mountain and I think that's the sort of approach. Uh, over the last few years, uh, the Chinese have closed the mountain through Tibet on the north side, so that's meant that it's a lot busier on the Nepal side. Uh, but now that is open again, and from next season there will be climbers on the north side, so it will reduce the number of people climbing from Nepal by about a third. As far as how you manage it when you're on the mountain, like my approach is I just let all of those people who are in a hurry to get back to the office to go to the summit and then go home and then we're off and climbing the mountain you know, a week or so later with no one else on the mountain. So it's, uh, it's all about how you approach it. Guy, you've got your book, uh, Everest Mountain Guide, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer. It is out now. Um, I, I guess the question is, I mean, Gary uh, used to say to me, you know, there's, there's not too many old mountaineers around, uh, but I, I, I don't know if you, you class yourself as an old mountaineer just yet, but I know your dad at 80, Ed, he, he managed to trek to Everest Base Camp, so uh, there's hope for all of us. Uh, wh- why, was, uh, why did you decide now was the time for the book? Well, I did have a couple of years off. Um, that was COVID. Hmm. <laughs> so I had a bit of time uh, to actually put it all together. I've been writing diaries uh, of all my expeditions and never really done anything with it. So when uh, COVID came along, I thought, right, what, what I'll do is I'll um, turn this into a book. And I worked with uh, Robbie Burton, uh, Burton Potton Publishing in, in Nelson, uh, who was very supportive with helping me put it together. And he's um, made a beautiful publication. Uh, and the book covers my life, I suppose, from when I started climbing through uh, my Everest campaigns, uh, including, you know, the, the highlights uh, and also the, the low points. So um, it's an exploration of what's happened over the last three decades on the mountain. There's been a lot of changes from those of us who went there first, obviously with with uh, Rob and Gary through to uh, the present day. A lot has changed on the mountain and, and, the, and the book um, explores that. And in the final chapter, I summarise some thoughts on... Uh, on where it's all at and, and where it might go, uh, you know, and I see a positive uh, future for the place. And, um, you know, the, uh, the the listener just put it in the uh, top 100 uh, books for the year, which, wow. was, um, which is great. So anybody who's out there looking for Christmas presents, look no further. Just go and buy the, uh, the book Everest Mountain Guide and, and, and you're done. Yeah, you're done indeed. Well, congratulations on making the top 100 books, Guy. Uh, uh, I've had a good read, and it is, it is a great read. I, I really enjoyed it, mate. So thanks for putting it together, and uh, congratulations on the book again, and and uh, enjoy your, your summer. Hopefully you get a bit of downtime, put your feet up, and enjoy the book's success, eh? Oh, I'm off to Antarctica next week, so uh, <laughs> I won't have much down to rest. No, <laughs> no, no, you won't be working on your tan camp. either, though, will you? No, I don't. Well, my face will get tanned, and that'll be about it. <laughs> cheers, Guy. Yeah, cheers. Guy Cotter there with us, uh, the author of Everest Mountain Guide, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer, and it is a damn good read. Uh, if you like I can listen stories. to that all day. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know. I mean, he, he's... Um, He's done what only so many people only ever dream of doing, yeah. and he's and he's turned it into a job. Yeah, and and just watching those programs, how tough! Mm. What a job! Like putting your not only your own life at risk, but looking after everyone as well. Like you've got you've got their lot 
their lives in your hands as a guide making decisions on the game. Hence the question, like, how tough is it when you get up there losing altitude, people losing their marbles, mm. and, you, and you're making decisions to save lives? Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know. I mean, and I know he talked about... And um, you've been up there. Well, I haven't been up to Everest. I, we, I went to Dullagiri Base Camp, which is about 18,500 feet up, I think. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that, and, and you know and that was tough. And you know. Ball and Hall, it's your that's your uncle. Yeah, yeah, Gary Balls, my uncle is my dad's younger brother. Um, and so when we went to Dalagiri, it was to retrieve his body because he died on Dalagiri, and they buried well, him. Well, they didn't bury him; they just lowered him down a crevasse. Basically, is mm. how they buried him. And then the Dalagiri base camp is on a slow moving glacier, and the glacier pushed his body out about ten years later, and these Argentinian climbers found it. And um, well, uh, so yeah. Oh, sorry. Some French environmentalists found it, and then some Argentinian climbers. When we went there, they had flagged exactly where it was, and we went and put them in a body bag and reburied them over there. Um, it's because you wanted to stay on the mountain. So yeah, yeah. But I mean, like we went, and it was we got told go to sp- go in spring. It's the best time of year to go. Uh, so we went in spring. Get their heaviest snowfalls they've had. For forty odd years in spring, <laughs> of so, course. And then, and then because you know if you go to Everest Base Camp or you do the Annapurna Circuit, they're very well travelled, so they basically have pathways for you to follow. Yeah. And then we got to you know we landed in Kathmandu, talked to the guiding uh, company that we were using, the Sherpas and the Sardar and that, and they're like, oh no, there's no pathways because no one goes to Dalagiri except climbers, so it's not a tourist destination. So we had that compounded with the heaviest snowfalls they'd had in forty odd years with. You have, what, to, you, you have to make your, your own path. Go, what did your body go through? I reckon I lost about 15 kilos in 12 days. Wow. Uh, something like that. And and that was because, you know, Guy talked about some of the effects of altitude. Yeah. I couldn't eat. So, you, you know. Jeez, you, I'd find that tough. Well, I would. you would expect me to find that tough too, right? But it affected me in a way that, so they'd make you porridge and things like that in the morning. And I'd have like two spoons of porridge. And it felt like I'd eaten a roast and gone back for seconds. Is I, that right? I, I just felt like, and I couldn't physically eat any more, otherwise I'd be ill. That's how it felt. And so, yeah, I, I lived on orange and lemon tea. And, yeah, we trekked through. Yeah, I mean, I may have even lost more. I don't know. I didn't weigh myself before I went and when I come back, but I certainly lost a heap. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. and what, what, do you, what do you remember most about the challenge, like, did did your mind go to a space where it was like, man, I can't do, I can't do this? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's just like you know, I brought up that Hemingway quote. Yeah. Um, because Rob Hall and Gary Gary my uncle, whenever they used to go out to a uh, an expedition overseas, they would come and stay with mum and dad for a couple of days as they were getting ready in Auckland, and so you, know, you get to sort of sit down and have a chat. And Rob Hall was the one that made me aware of that quote. And he said, you know, he said, the thing is, if you're halfway up there or halfway down the mountain or whatever it is, and you've had enough, you can't signal to the bench for a sub. No. There's no one, no one can get you out of it but you. So it's all on you. Everything and, is on you. Hence a lot of those those climbers that when they do die up on those mountains, they're just sitting on the track. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like even in Guy's book, uh, there's a chapter that I read uh, where they went and uh, he, he took his partner and some friends and they climbed uh, Lutzi, which is, I think, the fourth highest. And yeah, the, on the way to the summit, you go through past this rocky outcropping where the ropes were. And as he was leading the way and he gets round the rocky outcropping and there's a dead body sitting there in climbing gear all red uh, with back against the rock looking up at the sky and just there. 
But, yeah. you know, nothing to be done about it. So That's right. Halfway up the mountain. Halfway up the mountain. And, you know, it was, Rob and Gary had a, a, a thing where they agreed that if one of them passed away on the mountain, they'd leave them on the mountain. Yeah. So, and that's what they, they both stayed on the mountains. I mean, Rob's still on Everest. Yeah. 